welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Sup. And freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, people. Now, we've got a big show planned. We are talking about one of our favorite genres, sci-fi, and specifically the big film to land on Netflix this week. They're pretty much releasing a big film every week. It's really just, you know, it's not like a studio where it's like one every month that's going to be something here. It's just bam, bam, bam. It's just a new thing all the time. Yeah, it's part of their business model, I think. Netflix are kind of desperate to establish themselves as a major player in the film industry before... Disney, HBO, etc., set up something as big as Netflix to compete with them. Um, they want to be the more trusted name in the field of streaming so that when those guys get into the market, there's no room. That That's basically their game plan. Isn't Doesn't Disney already have a streaming service well, akin to Netflix? They own, they own like 30% of Hulu, and with after they buy Fox, they'll become the majority owners of that. But uh, That's depressing. They'll also own our childhoods. I mean, what do yes, they own? Exactly. X-Men they own everything. Star Wars and... But yeah, no one, even in America, I think no one cares about Hulu. It's all about Netflix. So Hulu, Hulu, They'll probably Hulu. revamp it if they really want to take on Netflix, which apparently they do. Uh, but, to, and, but Netflix, to compete, will have to have some pretty serious film That's content. right. Yeah, so they're just pumping it out right now in order to really get a foot in the marketplace. You know, um, big money being spent, apparently over $100 million on the Scorsese film, The Irishman. So, yeah, they're not playing. But honestly, the film we should really talk about is last month's When We First Met, starring Adam Devine and Alexander Daddario. It's so bad. It's awful. It's like Groundhog Day, but just the fraction of the quality of that outstanding Come on, you you liked Happy Death Day, so it's... Yes, Happy Death Day was a great film. It was Bloomhouse. They knew what they were doing. They actually had a clever premise and a great denouement. But this was just a really creepy guy going back in time to to try to score with someone. It's not half... Not just someone, Alexander Daddario. Uh, we haven't talked about a lot of her films. She's been in some great stuff, including I'm um, making a sequel to San Andreas. That's coming up. Yes, also The Layover, which also seems like the movie which shouldn't have been made. But anyway. Anyway, we're not talking about The Layover this week. That might be on Netflix. We're not sure. We are talking about... On Stand. Re- oh, on Stand. There you go. The Cloverfield Paradox later in the program, which uh, I believe the ad budget for the Super Bowl for this, when they launched it that day, was bigger than the actual budget for the film. It shows. But the main film we are talking about is Alex Garland's Annihilation, which premiered at least in Australia and several other countries, last night on Netflix. And it's actually been quite controversial because it was going to get a mainstream studio release, but Paramount ended up selling, or dumping as you might view it, the rights, giving the rights to Netflix. Yeah, except for theatrical rights. You know, So it's screened in America, but opened with basically no marketing two weeks ago, Same, and is also opening in China. But yeah, everywhere else, it's Netflix. I wonder if they sold this in a two-for-one deal with the Cloverfield Paradox. Oh, I, I hope not. I think look, they would have done better out of this one, the Cloverfield Paradox. But um, as I was hearing, it's a really interesting story. They, the Alex Garland, they, the studio wanted him to reshoot um, all a part of it, and he refused. But the ultimate creative control went with the producer, Rudin, Scott Rudin, and he sided with Garland. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Scott Rudin uh, refused to... Um, force Alex Garland to do the reshoots that the studio and other producers were trying to, um, you know, force upon the film. And so we're getting pretty much Alex Garland's original vision here. It's a really interesting debate within the film. Yeah, I guess Paramount decided they wouldn't bother 
if they, the changes they requested weren't going to be put in place. So here we are. Well, it, was, it was probably a good call for the Clothing Paragraphs. I'm not so sure for Annihilation. I mean, it is an interesting debate that happens whenever a stu- it appears that a studio is going to interfere in an imminent release. I mean, with Rogue One, certainly there was a fan backlash when this happened, but the film turned out to be very good. The Justice League stuff going on right now is pretty funny. It seems like people are convincing themselves that there'd be a great film in there if only we could have seen visionary director Zack Snyder's original untouched vision. Oh, yes. The Snyder Cut is, what, the only cut? Yeah, supposedly. I know. People just should grow up and realize it was a bad movie. It was never It was whatever. never going to be a great movie. Yeah. Like, Zach, did the guy who made Batman vs. Superman and Man of Steel, Zack Snyder really have some hidden masterpiece in him that the studio is trying to shield us from. But it's that sort of thing about if you're doing dark movies, like literally with bad lighting, you're somehow making gritty, realistic cinema. Yeah. And I don't really buy that. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's, there was, I think, one good scene in Watchmen. I think that's the extent of Sider's excellent... Uh, well, to his credit, it was the one great scene in Watchmen was the one scene that wasn't taken from the graphic novel and was an right. original original creation for the film. Yep, that's and it has been copied endlessly since. Yeah, that's right. Yep, to his credit. But no, we are t- we're getting a little sidetracked. We are talking about Annihilation, the new Alex Garland feature. This is starring Natalie Portman. Well, but we are, you know, it's, it is on, on the subject because I want to annihilate Watchmen and Zack Snyder. <laughs> so, it, it's a rec- bit of a recurring theme here. You'd get that joke when you, you see the film as to how movie titles are dropped in uh, yeah. quite nonchalantly. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of fantastic YouTube compilations of all the roll credits moments in movies. I think Suicide Squad had probably the most obsequious, worst one where Will Smith's character just goes, what are we, some sort of Suicide Squad? And this is <laughs> just for the trailer. This is pr- yeah. pretty bad. But this is starring Natalie Portman as a biologist, and she is mourning the disappearance, long disappearance of her husband who is serving in the army, played by Oscar Isaac, when she um, and well, the U.S. government and a number of other quite senior figures within fields of realms of science else encounter what is labelled a shimmer. The film opens with a object arriving from space at a lighthouse, and it slowly begins to expand, and people slowly begin to go into this thing, unclear what it is, and not return. But it, the problematic part of it is of course that it is slowly expanding i think the problematic part of it is that before we see that thing hit the lighthouse we get the first of many boring scenes about oscar isaac and natalie portman's lifeless you know relationship that's going to dominate the film i i know um, this movie was lacking in heart all of the way and any attempt to somehow related to coming kind of emotional center was just very frugal and quite hilarious to be honest in the moment I agree with that, but we should probably continue talking about what the movie's about before. <laughs> well, I don't know. Can we? I don't know how much we want to yeah, say. Yeah, you're right. About exactly. It. Essentially, it is about a team of um, a, a team s- specialists go into a zone. Yeah, a team of female scientists go in to diagnose this undisclosed area where mysterious things happen. People haven't been returning from yeah. that zone, and so they have to figure out why and what it is. Yeah, and if you don't want to talk too much about it, jumping back to your earlier point, it is actually a hard film to mark because you don't even want to give away any of the visuals of what it is because it is a very visually distinct film. Uh, the crux of it, the conceit of it, is that um, this what is happening in there is fundamentally different in some way from what we are used to, and as soon as you get a visual clue of that, you're immediately clued into exactly what is happening. So it is a very hard film to explain or to show in trailer. So they've had to be pretty oblique with 
everything about this. I think it's the kind of movie that if you told people what it was, they wouldn't see it. Well, the film actually <laughs> spends a lot of time telling you what it is. I mean, I'm fine oh, with God, inferring yeah. <laughs> this and you're getting impressions of this, but there's, I think, two scenes in this film where, granted, they are scientists who are there to explain things, but they just jump in and say, this is what is happening. This is not a hypothesis. I have decided this is what is happening. And Yeah, what the hell? They, they come to saying that based on the most minimal evidence. Everyone's making these bold suppositions and then explaining it to the audience. Is, oh, this is what's going on. And, it, you know, there are some massive stretches how the we figured that out. The only thing that this movie credibly proves is that these people are just terrible scientists because they make massive claims without actually backing them up. So, somebody pointed out here that it's the opposite problem of Prometheus. You know, here they, they enter in with no helmets. <laughs> in that movie, they, they have helmets on, but they take them off straight away. That's in this true. movie, they don't even bother, even though everyone's considered it like a. there's evidence that it might be some kind of biohazard area. But it's also the same issue with Prometheus that they send, and you learn this element later, but essentially a lot of the characters, an element of it, I should say, but a lot of the characters who get sent in are not essentially acclimatized to this sort of high-stress environment. Like, going in with a few people to something you're completely unfamiliar with is very confronting. And clearly, um, there are many in this troop, many other troops of us have been there, who were not ready for this. And, um, yeah. I, mean, I agree. It strains credibility, but it's one of those things where I'm willing to go with that because it's it's kind of the concept of the film. We send emotionally unbalanced people into the into the zone and see what happens. But, the, the you know, it's crazy, but it's the metaphor of the film. So What I will... And this is what's so interesting about the film in one respect, in that it tries to promote some quite incredible ideas and ideas about emotionality and about basic human physiology. And it throws a lot of ideas at you. We're going to be talking later in the program about some of the great sci-fis, like Tenhouse and One, which posited one or two ideas. And I appreciate that, but I feel this film tried to posit so many and just threw a lot at you in the hopes some, some would stick or you would have a revelation of some sort about one or more. But I didn't find that many of these ideas were expressed cinematically. I think Alex Garland seems to be stuck in the writer mentality. I don't think he's yeah, a very he, visual director. Too much director. exposition in terms of writing, and it, everything was overwritten to the point that I had to be explained things by dialogue rather than letting just the scenes do the talking. Exactly. It might sound crazy to say that this isn't a very visual film because there is some eye-popping stuff going on, but in terms of yeah, in terms of uh, visualizing some of the craziness in, in this world, sure, there's, there's a fantastic design, but just in terms of finding a way to convey the strangeness and the wonder of this world or to maybe convey some of these complicated uh, sci-fi concepts through, you know, um, through action and visual means rather than through dialogue. I felt it really fell flat. And I found it, in a, a, despite having a few really eye-popping sequences, for the most part, it's a really visually uniform and boring movie where there's endless scenes of people you know, trudging across marshland. And it's not shot in a particularly beautiful way. What I just said pretty much describes Tarkovsky's Stalker, which is a film this evokes in a lot of ways. However, Tarkovsky found a way to make it look alien and beautiful. And this, um, despite some cool design touches like the glass trees and the, the shimmer itself and in its technicolor glory, it just, yeah, it looked boring. As Chris mentioned, this is very much an ideas movie, and perhaps one thing you can do with this movie is play a drinking game, much like you would do with Mother, the other ideas movie from last year. 
And because there are so many ideas and not many of them actually are expanded upon, it's a really interesting point about you can see this movie as metaphors for all kind of things and yet nothing in particular. Well, I'm really curious about the metaphorical aspect of it because there is one particular metaphor which is dealt with sparingly in Mother, which I feel a fair interpretation of this film is it's much more better enunciated. And the name of one main character who we haven't mentioned will be very clear in what this metaphor is immediately, because this is a name that everyone knows from the uh, from the Bible, but is very rarely used in film or elsewhere. I will say, um, on the subject of Mother, that film was extremely visual in the way that it tried to play out its ideas. It was all through action. It was all, you know, no one was explaining what Mother was about to the audience, even if it was ham-fisted. I prefer that, you know, a ham-fisted approach where it's being conveyed through, you know, in a way it's more subtle than what Annihilation is doing, which is having the audience, the characters sit down and describe what the film's about. You're right, and that'll eventually color your experience of how you experience Annihilation, whether or not you expect certain kind of explanation and exposition, or you just want a film to remain in that kind of motherland, per se, you know, where nothing is explained to you. Well, I was hoping for more visuals to explain what was going on, and there is a point in the film where you can understand based on what the extent of what you see, but it was restrained. Like, the idea of the film is so interesting, and you could have done so much more with it. Garland is a quite a good visual filmmaker. Um, some of the best scenes in Ex Machina, which we haven't even mentioned yet, uh, were taking place at the waterfall by the rocks. It was stunning, and it was a beautiful contrast with the mechanical aspects of the film, which were dominating it, and they could have gone for that same dichotomy here. And it could have been so interesting, and you could have had so many different elements and creations, and a visual designer would have loved to work on a project like this, but there were so many few elements of the film where he really explored what he could have with the idea he had. There's no sense of wonder. We're going into, or, or you know, when I say wonder, that might sound like too positive a word for a movie that's really going for a sense of menace, but there should be that sense of fear, like, what is this world? Um it's easy to tr- to justifiably trash Prometheus, but if you compare that movie, that nailed the sense of going into the unknown and the, se- and the sense of fear at- early on before things started getting stupid, much more so than this, you know? To be fair, this movie does have its spook and scary moments, and when they do arrive, I think they actually do deliver because the actual physicality and the shock value of those moments are truly earned. In those moments. So I think in that sense, but it's just that the beats are too repetitive. You just see it's them really coming repetitive. from far away. Yeah, Glenn said before that it was a really interesting concept, and it totally is. But it, I felt early on, this is a great concept being done in the least interesting possible way. Because none of these characters are interesting, and all of them talk in really, really stupid dialogue. So I just got a sense of lifelessness to it. We're watching characters you know, walk through this gloomy landscape with, you know, shot in desaturated colors and they never they talk like robots and, you know, enunciate the themes and the plot points and then get picked off one by one, you know, to spoil nothing. It's a pretty, that's described at the opening scene that, that I, I think that's so. what's going to happen to them. I'm, I'm actually quite curious. We haven't even touched on the extended ending yet. There is oh, a yeah. long 20-minute sequence of the film, which I feel similar to 2001 will come to characterize discussion on this. And I feel this is where the film, I enjoyed what they were trying to say, but at the same time, I feel I was let down because this is where they threw too many concepts, too many ideas, and it was too oblique to stick in any respect. I think it was really cool visually. 
it was nice to just watch it play out. It was the one time that I think I was actually enjoying it. Um, I would agree with Chris. Uh, surprise, uh, because I think this were, these are the moments, twenty twenty five minutes in the end, where yeah. there was Suddenly, no dialogue. no dialogue, no dumb characters exactly. saying stupid stuff to oh, each except other, except for one moment with the role. Oh yeah, which we oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, but, but that pretty much, you know, we end with like the mega clunker, and then we just go into the good stuff. Yeah, but it, it's it's amazing because. Garland actually has the ability to to let a scene play out because for the lot lot of the film you just think that he's using words and dialogue as a crutch because he doesn't have confidence in himself. Let exactly, yeah, clearly, the talking. clearly he but has he some talent. He does. If, if he could just tap into that yeah. more over the course of the film, um, Glenn was saying that that wasn't satisfying. I agree with that. I feel the sequence itself was cool, but. I don't think that the movie's properly built up to it. They're going for like that sense of the unknown sudden ending, like 2001, where suddenly they, after the long, slow build-up, we face something big and mysterious. But I don't think there's enough clues and cues in the, in the build-up of the movie for this to really sing. Maybe I'm just stupid. Well, there's, for me, I, when we watched this last night, um, I compared this to a Doctor Who episode received season four, Midnight. Uh, which involves a unknown creature slowly um, people coming to terms with what is an unknown element around them, but also probably my favorite episode from the new series, which is the Empty Child, season one, which um, as this various deals with these biological theological elements at the same time. Um, those in the space of forty five minutes set up its premise and. Much smarter well, writing, actually. Which is, I'm surprised from Garland, who made Sunshine and much else. Actually, this brings me to the broader point about how this movie set up to begin with. And I wanted to let, let you guys have an opinion about that, about the clunky writing and overriding in this movie. And the bad how much, characters. How much of that is actually a result of the studio interference? And how much of you think is actually Genesis in Alex's script to I begin re- with? I reckon this is his vision. Is it? Because it does feel like it's a mix of two very different styles. There are moments where he's allowing the visuals to do the talking, and then there are moments where he's overcompensating. So it just feels like, you know, whether he's in two minds and not sure committing either way. It just feels like a not very well thought through project to me. Like for the first 20 minutes of the film, I was just thinking, like, what's going on here? A bunch of things are happening, but I didn't really feel any oh, drive. So many walking shots. Yeah, so many walking shots, but <laughs> but no trajectory. Like yeah. <laughs> everyone's walking, but nothing's <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> True. This kind, he wanted to go for, for, I feel, something in between with the projects he has done. Ex Machina, as good as it is a visual film, is a character drama and is an enclosed character drama dealing with three people essentially in a house for a long time. The other films he has written and worked on but not directed are Visual Feast, the ones by Danny Boyle, 28 Days Later, and my favorite of those, Sunshine. I think he tried to go for something in the middle and he couldn't have it both ways. Danny Boyle is a great visualist. You know, he's got at least has the energy and the the sense to probably reimagine some of the more visually laden stuff. So, you know, the the more tied to the text stuff and make it sing. I'll have to accept that about Danny Boyle, even though he made a movie that I hate. Oh, he's made a movie I'm sure all of us hate. Like Slumdog Millionaire. Right. But even that had <laughs> great visuals. I thought you were going to say millions for a sec, one of his early ones. But no, um, he is... And you look at his um, opening ceremony work in the 2012 Olympics. Like he, 
is visually entrancing. I think this could have used some of that here. I mean, this is Alex yeah. Garland's second directorial film. D- Danny Boyle would have done a better job. <laughs> I think it, unquestionably. It, it does feel like, you know, Garland wrote a novel for the screen. And Garland started writing novels, you know, before he yeah. moved to script. Uh, and, and this actually, is an adaptation of yeah, the, exactly. a loose one of a, a novel. By well. Jeff Vandermeer, which is uh, he's a fantastic writer, so I think people should definitely go and read the book anyway. Um, one more, on the subject of this being a very intellectual, ideas-driven, sci-fi novel-derived um, film, as we've been talking about, I found it to be actually kind of dumb. Like it seemed like a movie that was really assured of its own intelligence, but in uh like it was trying to create a sense of entrancing mystery like 2001 or solaris or or stalker but instead to me it just felt kind of vague like there's only a lot of hints but not enough um not enough in the rest of the movie to give you a satisfying uh, sense of tying them together and and getting some kind of deeper understanding if you think about it instead a lot of these things are just dead ends that lead nowhere and uh scientific mumbo jumbo that and a lot of pop psychology pop psychology pop philosophy um, pop science that doesn't tie together it, but and is left intentionally obscure it, uh, for seemingly the purpose of creating a, an artificial sense of depth. That's how it felt to me. What I find really interesting was picking up on your point, uh, one of the films, major science fiction, we haven't discussed um, is Alien, and Ridley Scott, back in 1980 or so, had to fight to get the engineer in that opening scene in the film, and that has gone on to mesmerize audiences for decades as up to Prometheus and there is a moment in this film which a couple of moments actually which are very visually cinema s- similar excuse mm. me that was a bit of Freudian stuff there but, and just thrown in and they are not followed through in the same way and it's, it feels lacking yeah the engineer or space jockey as we used to call it though I think that's an example of something mysterious that ties in enough to this film's universe that doesn't have to be explained whereas Annihilation just felt like it was toying with the audience by throwing in vague things that don't really tie into anything and suggesting it it all adds up to this big mystery. Ooh, it's like Lost or something. And and I think the worst part about it, maybe the part that I found the most troublesome uh, to begin with, was this idea of somehow tying each character's individual arc with this overall broader theme of annihilation, per se. And that was the weak link in, I think, the entire movie. I just couldn't buy that emotional center. And I'm supposed to somehow believe the choices each of these characters make eventually I was just wasn't on board D- did you guys find that the this whole arc and idea that we're talking about you know that side of the movie was clashing with the the monster movie B movie stuff well the monster movie B movie stuff was it, barely in there there were two shock scenes yeah, by my count they just wanted to throw it in there maybe for the trailer's sake <laughs> it is barely in there and I will say that one of those sequences is quite well executed though it contradicts what we've learned earlier in the film yeah um, but but also I thought those were my favourite scenes right in the entire movie but yeah it, it, it feels like like it doesn't know what it wants to be because when I when you get to that last twenty five minute sequence that reveals what this movie's really meant to be all about, I think does that really work with um, a bunch of slasher monster attack scenes that you know they're really not adding to the idea of what the you know the ideas that are supposedly central to the film and if it's going for an intellectual sci fi approach they really cheapen it. I mean, the movie's already kind of cheap. You know, it, it uses dumb exposition devices like, you know, where whenever the characters need to learn something, there's a a 
uh, video camera left behind so or that they note, can or, or note or, or something so yeah. that it's they a, can be filled in exactly a, yeah uh, well, that is Annihilation. It is streaming on Netflix now. Um, I think maybe one time, month down the road, we might have a, a spoiler-filled discussion and just talk about some of the other elements, which I think people still need to see the film. Yeah, no, actually, like people should definitely watch it. It's I wouldn't tell still... you not to watch it. It's pretty unique. Um, I would say try and watch it on the biggest screen you can. We were very lucky because Sydney film legend Will Wong allowed us to watch it on his 4K projector. That's right, an actual 4K projector in a house owned by a young person. Yeah, yeah. If, if you can watch Netflix Love in 4K, it is absolutely worth it. Uh, Will is amazing. Will and I ran the film club here some years ago, and he is a he worked here on, at UTS, here where at the UTS. 2SES studio is located. Yes. Showing your age tag, Glenn. Ooh, I, did not, I didn't say when, I just said back in the day. Yeah, generally. back in the day is something that old people say. Well, th- 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 thanks, man. My, my hair's still here. Hair's, hair's still there. So that is, that is, <laughs> I love you, Glenn. I love you too, bro. Wait, wait, film Fight Club. Sorry, Film Fight Club. This is Annihilate. That is Annihilation. It is streaming on Netflix now. Uh, we'd also like to touch on a couple of things that are... Well, one thing that's streaming on Netflix, um, Cloverfield Paradox, which we discussed briefly earlier. This is the third iteration in the J.J. Abrams series. This one stars Google Martha Raw, Elizabeth Debicki, Daniel Brawl, and a few others. Um, the impression I get very strongly is that a B-grade sci-fi film centered space taking half episodes from about seven different iterations of Star Trek um, storylines and cramming them into a film. J.J. Abrams and the crew liking it and essentially saying we're going to make you a Cloverfield movie and put our stamp on it and get a mainstream release. Um, the biggest problem with 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is actually my favorite of the series, is that the Cloverfield element is... Totally pretty, tacked on. It's tacked on, but I didn't mind it. I didn't mind the ending. I like the film as a whole. This is infinitely worse. It is tokenistic to the nth degree. And, you know, this deals with a lot of the... Essentially, it's a bunch of people on a spaceship, a bunch of scientists dealing with, um, let's say, environmental problems on Earth and feeling that they can maybe address it up here. And Cloverfield plays a small part of it. Um, this has some of the mainstay tropes of science fiction. It has the alternate dimensions. It has the Q character who just rocks up randomly. This, by the way, it's they treated it very nonchalantly. Like You'd think if you were seven people on a spaceship and a random character just appeared in the fuselage, there might be a cause for alarm. But they just treated this as, oh, it's Tuesday. Someone's rocked up. It's that episode of Star <laughs> Trek Day. Um, this was this premiered to much fanfare in that there was discussion about the film. It was it was meant to be released in cinemas in America, and suddenly it's a Netflix movie. Yeah, Netflix decided to make a big ad at Super Bowl and then dropped it that day. I mean, it would have been amazing if they just said streaming now. The Super Bowl people would have probably stopped watching the Patriots <laughs> match and you know just gone to watch it. But yeah, this um, was incredibly disappointing and sadly so I I mean I don't I'm brilliant someone, marketing though it's like take the money and run yeah yeah I, I'm yeah like, they, they it did, gets well, people to watch respect. it before the bad word of mouth spreads around yeah and it's probably gonna it's probably did well in that respect it's probably the only way it would have done well I'm not someone who likes to stop watching films halfway through even if they're terrible I like to sit it through this tested me though Ooh. um and Gugu Bartharaw she is you know coming up she's an emerging great actress Daniel Brawl. Uh, and, Daniel Brawl, yeah, it's great actors. And Daniel Oluelio as well? Uh, uh, yes, and what's his name from um, the IT crowd? Uh, uh, Chris O'Dowd. Chris O'Dowd. Yep. And they're all excellent, but they're all in different films. Chris O'Dowd's in a comedy. Like, something really bad happens to him. He's just like, oh, this happened to me. Chris O'Dowd is always in a comedy. Well, this uh, is the thing. <laughs> like, he was... What, are, what is he doing here? What are there, any of them doing he's here? He's perfect. Now, don't 
bash Chris O'Dowd. He can just do anything. He can just just needs to exist. If he decides he's in a comedy, yes. it's now a comedy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> because Chris O'Dowd said so. <laughs> but could you take Chris O'Dowd seriously? Look, he made the sapphires work as well, which was, you know, otherwise, without Chris O'Dowd, quite plain and undramatic. Did anyone see that uh, one he made out Lance Armstrong where he was the reporter? Oh, yeah, no. with, with Ben was Foster, it a comedy? With ben ben Foster, Foster playing right, yeah. uh, Lance Armstrong. That yeah. was a really good movie. I saw it at the British Film Festival a couple of years ago or last year when it premiered there. That's actually not a bad uh, attempted biopic of... Uh, Lance Armstrong and ego issues. Right. Well, this is. I probably should catch that over this. I mean, you know, when you see. <laughs> no one wants to talk about. No one wants to talk about paradox. Look, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, this is one of now. There's. We've had two in the past few weeks. Major science fiction films just drop on Netflix. There's also the other series. Both, on, we both from Paramount. And the series we haven't talked about, um, Altered Carbon, with Joel Kinnaman, which I saw the first episode of this. I was not sold. Um, it seems they're dumping a lot of money into. Big budget sci-fi stuff and I, mute. I think sci-fi, yeah, mute. The the um, Duncan Jones. Duncan film. Jones, yeah, but none of us have seen that, right? Apparently, it hasn't been well received. Uh, I'm seeing zero and a half star reviews. Oh wow. Yeah, um, I think Netflix probably are putting a lot of money into sci-fi because sci-fi is something that's always done well on home video and it's always had a dedicated fan base. Yeah, um, I, I mute. I mean. There's going to be more of these. I mean, until the Irishman comes out, I'm expecting you know one of these a lot of fillers. Yeah, every week. But the, the, the Irishman is really going to be their awards film. It's, the, it's their way of saying, like Manchester by the Sea for Amazon, we are here, we are serious, we want an Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They also have a new No Bumbuck movie coming out, following up on the success of Mayorit stories, which I'm quite keen for. Yeah, and and it has Laura Dern and Greta Gerwig and Greta Gerwig and Adam Driver. It's oh my god, great cast! It's, it's like the yeah. dream team of dream teams. It's, it's kind of like a reunion for Last Jedi. Let's uh, in some ways. <laughs> in some ways. So we have been Film Fight Club. Uh, we will be back next week, talking a little less Netflix, but much more film. I'm Glenn Falconson, Chris Evans, and Virat Nehru. You are all three. <laughs> <laughs> you are the three from Adaptation. <laughs> have you seen Adaptation? I have. Not okay. Well, there's basically you described the script that Charlie Kaufman's brother writes. Good night, everyone. Good night. Bye. <laughs>